Good morning and welcome to this Sunday's live stream of our uh, service. I uh, thank you for showing up and uh, uh, listening in as we continue our uh, 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 progress through the, serm- through the Gospel of Mark. Uh, before we do that, we will uh, uh, continue with our public scripture reading. I invite you to turn to Numbers chapter 15. Uh, We will read uh, verses 32 to 41, and while you are turning there, just a couple of updates with uh, with what's going on here at Snoqualmie Valley Bible Church. Uh, This Friday, which is Good Friday, we will be live streaming a Good Friday message, so tune in to the church's Facebook page at 6.30, Uh, and if you go to the Facebook page, uh, well, not now, because you'll be listening to the scripture reading and the sermon, but... After the service, uh, feel free to check the uh, short update from Jack Moyer, director of Camp Gilead. He is one of the two uh, missionaries that we support. We support uh, one missionary abroad, Marco Bartolome in Germany, and we support one local ministry, uh, Camp Gilead. And, And Jack has an update with how things are going at the camp and specifically how you can pray for for him and for the camp. Also, later this week, we will send out uh, an email with uh, details and information how, uh, how you can send your, your offering and financial support to the church. Okay, so by now, I've bought enough time for you to find Numbers chapter 15, verses 32 to 41. Now, while the sons of Israel were in the wilderness... They found a man gathering wood on the Sabbath day. Those who found him gathering wood brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation, and they put him in custody because it had not been declared what should be done to him. Then the Lord said to Moses, The man shall surely be put to death. All the congregations shall stone him with stones outside the camp. So all the congregation brought him outside the camp, And stoned him to death with stones, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. The Lord also spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, and tell them that they shall make for themselves tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations. And they shall put on the tassel of each corner a cord of blue. It shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord, so as to do them and not follow after your own heart and after your own eyes after which you have played the harlot, so that you may remember to do all my commandments and be holy to your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. Let's take a a moment of prayer in light of this passage. Father God, we, we, we see... A reflection of ourselves in this passage. We so often we are so prone uh, uh, to make to make a promise to you, to vow ourselves to you. We say with our lips uh, a profession that we will give our lives to you. We will live for you. We will seek you. And we we may say that with good intentions, but we so often prove to fall short of what we say we will do. And not very long after you have given your, your covenant to Israel, which had the Ten Commandments, which the one commandment which had the, 
the most words. It's the, the longest commandment in the Ten Commandments said to not work and to keep the Sabbath holy. And so shortly after the people say, we will do all that the Lord has commanded us, we see this man, and perhaps there were others, but we see this man being caught uh, caught being a transgressor and failing to do what he said he would do. Help us to learn from from his error. Let us be a people whose yes is yes and whose no is no. And above all this, Lord, give us give us the heart and give us the means to fulfill the things you are ver- are calling us to do. Amen. Well, now I invite you to turn to Mark chapter 15, Mark chapter 15, verses 42 to 47. This says my mic is fading in and out. Is it is, is the sound OK now? OK, thank you for that. Uh, heads up, Alyssa. Mark chapter 15, verse 42 to 47 And I'm calling this how God buried his son, how God buried his son. No matter how familiar you are with the Bible, I'm sure that the passages that tend to stick out most in your memory are those where God uses incredible miracles and wonders and great supernatural displays of power. And since those things stick out to us, it, I, I think it's easy for us to think uh, that this was what everyday life was like for, for the likes of Abraham and David and the others that we read about in, in the Bible. But the truth is, is that was not the norm. That was not the norm. The truth is, is God rarely intervened in and through miracles. They were far more infrequent and happened Far, uh, they, they were far less common than you'd think. What, what, is, what is far more frequent, which is more common, and in fact happens every day, even to this day, is God providentially orchestrating natural processes and ordinary events to accomplish his will. That is what he has done every day since he, has cre- since he created the world. And that is what he still does. This is what he still does every day today. And I think it's fitting. I think it's fitting and appropriate and timely for us to think about how God does this, how he uses ordinary means, ordinary circumstances, ordinary people to accomplish and bring about his sovereign will. Why? Because we've just spent the last two weeks looking at God's promise to take care of of his people. We looked at Matthew 6, we looked at Matthew at Psalm 121. And with that presupposition that uh, I, I think we often have that that God in, in, in the Bible times that he was always acting in the supernatural. He was, you know, it was an everyday thing to, to hear from the prophets or to, or to see writing on the wall or to see miracles and wonders. We, we, we tend to think that that's what life in, in Bible times was like. And so we forget and overlook and, and downright doubt that God is able to direct every part of his creation to accomplish exactly 
and, and completely all that he has planned and purposed to do today. We don't see the supernatural, we don't see the miracles, and we tend to downplay or even outright doubt that God is active or cares what's going on in our lives. But the truth is, is as I have already said, every day in history until now and even today and tomorrow and thereafter, he coordinates a near infinite number of contingency. He, he superintends the behaviors and the wills and the actions and the choices of all his creatures so that all things, including people's choices and their actions, ultimately uh, fall in line and coincide with his perfect purposes. And, and here's, here's the thing I really can't perfectly explain is he does that while at the same time never becoming the author of sin and never reducing or removing human responsibility. That, that's a sermon for another time, so we aren't going to get into that now. But looking back at Mark, in chapters 14 and 15, we have seen a tremendously important example of God, here's that word again, superintending or, 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 or sovereignly working through uh, the events and the activities of men who have their own wills, they have their own motives, they have their own choices, and yet God is working in and through them to accomplish his divine purpose. We've seen God using the religious rulers of Israel, who uh, Mark even told us in uh, chapter 15, verse 10, they are motivated by envy. They are not trying to fulfill scripture. They are jealous. They are envious of the power and the influence and the sway that Jesus has with the people. They are motivated by envy, by bitter jealousy. And then we have we have Pilate and the Roman soldiers who really could care less about what God wants. Pilate himself said in John's gospel, what is, what is truth? As, as if he doesn't care what truth is. And yet we see God using the Sanhedrin, the religious rulers of Israel. We see God using Pilate and the soldiers, here it is, to put Jesus exactly where he was ordained to be, precisely when he was ordained to be there, so that he might die precisely how he was ordained to die. And the truth is, is God's providential superintendence has not ended now that Jesus has died. Our text today, Mark 15, verse 42 to 47, demonstrates how the sovereign providence of God arranged Jesus to be buried precisely when and how he was ordained to be buried in God's sovereign plan. And here's the thing. He does it not by means of the miraculous. He doesn't, you don't hear, we don't see a voice thundering down from heaven and a lightning bolt striking uh, a tomb into the rock where Jesus is going to be laid. God is doing it by means of common, natural, everyday circumstances. The soldiers, Pilate, Joseph of Arimathea, we'll see Nicodemus as well, as well as the rest of the religious rulers of Israel. They are, these are all normal men, and they are motivated by their, by their personal desires, by their personal emotions, 
and swayed by their personal responsibilities. Their choices are theirs. Their actions are theirs. Yet we see God sovereignly controlling every detail so that the, so that the choices they make they made work together to fulfill what God said long ago in the, by the prophet Isaiah would happen. Now, the, the four headings we have for our text today, in verse 42 to 43, we see the gathering up of Joseph's courage, the gathering up of courage. And then in 44 to 45, the granting of Jesus's body. In verse 46, the gesture of affection. And verse 47, the gazing of the women. Let's read what Mark writes for us. Mark 15, 42 to 47. I'll try to hold the Bible here so my mic picks up better. When evening had already come, because it was the preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea came, a prominent member of the council who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. And he gathered up courage and went in before Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate wondered if he was dead by this time and summoning the centurion, he questioned him as to whether he was already dead. And ascertaining this from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Joseph bought a linen cloth took him down, wrapped him in the linen cloth, and laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out in the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, were looking on to see where he was laid. First, we... We get to look at the gathering of Joseph's courage in verses 42 to 43. We, we saw in, in verse 30, uh, uh, 33 and 37 that the time of Jesus' death is approximately 3 o'clock. And by this point in verse 42, when it says when evening came, it's not that much further after that it's four or five at the latest we see the word evening and we may think uh dusk or 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 nightfall but uh this is actually uh what one scholar calls first evening you've heard of of first and second breakfast in the shire this is first evening uh uh what we consider evening or, or nightfall would be the second evening that is actually according to the jewish calendar when the next day began. So this is technically the evening of Friday, but it's sometime uh, between three or more likely four to five to at the absolute latest six o'clock. Now, true evening, nighttime is approaching, and with that comes the uh, the uh, arrival of the Sabbath. And it's for that reason that Joseph of Arimathea is hurrying to procure the body of Jesus so that he can prepare and then so they prepare Jesus's body for burial and then bury him while it is still Friday and before it becomes the Sabbath. Now, there's three things that Mark tells us about Joseph. One is his place of birth. And we really aren't certain where Arimathea is. Some people uh, speculate that this is Ramah. 
uh, and, it, and it was the birthplace of Samuel, which is about 20 miles northwest of Jerusalem. But the important thing was to Mark's audience, uh, to the original readers of Mark's gospel, they knew where Arimathea was. So when they hear Joseph of Arimathea, they're telling them it's this particular Joseph. Out of all the Josephs you know, this is the Joseph I'm talking about, the Joseph from that city. Now, what's more important is that is the next detail Mark gives us is that Joseph was a prominent member of the council. The council being the Sanhedrin, the, the, the ruling council of Israel. This is the joint assembly of both the chief priests and the, the, the scribes and the Pharisees as well as the elders of the people. And we aren't told which faction he belonged to. Uh, just merely that he was a prominent member. And so he is somebody who is important. He has power. He has considerable power, considerable influence and sway. He also has considerable money, which we're going to see in a little bit. But he's somebody very important, uh, kind of like a senator today. He is, somebody, he is somebody so important that he can request a sudden audience with the Roman governor and have that request granted. And so there were many of these of these uh, uh, powerful men in, in the Sanhedrin uh, in Israel, but there is one thing that set him apart from the great majority of his fellow Sanhedrin council members, and that is that the third detail is that he was waiting for the kingdom of God. He was waiting for the kingdom of God. And what this means is that he had a messianic hope. And he was, he was looking forward with expectation and great anticipation, hopeful anticipation to the fulfillment of all of God's promises which were bound up in the person and the arrival of Messiah. Now, unlike those who were looking forward to the kingdom of God were the chief priests and maybe some of the Pharisees. These men were quite content with the lives they had. They were, they were very comfortable with the power and the, 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 the lives of relative ease that they had, with the influence they had, and they wanted things to pretty much stay as they were. But Joseph is waiting for the true prosperity and the true peace, for true righteousness, which God had promised to give to Israel with the coming of Messiah and when Messiah would be put on the throne of David. That is what that is what Joseph was looking for. This is what Joseph saw in Jesus. But but what's remarkable and amazing is that the rest of the Sanhedrin, they didn't see any of that in Jesus. All they could see was the threat that Jesus posed to their power. That is the only thing they saw. It's the only thing that they could see. They fixated on the threat Jesus posed to their to their own power and their response to that perceived threat is hostility. Joseph on the other hand and as we'll see Nicodemus Joseph saw that Jesus filled perfectly the messianic molds of the Messiah laid down in the Old Testament. Joseph saw the scriptures said Messiah will be like this. Messiah will do this. And he's, he hears the reports about what Jesus is doing, raising the dead, giving sight to the blind, freeing the captives, proclaiming the word of God. 
and he, he, he sees Jesus fulfilling the mold of Messiah. The other thing he saw was that Jesus did things that he could only do if God had sent him and if God was with him and if God was empowering him. His associate Nicodemus said, that, said as much in John chapter 3, Teacher, we know you are from God, for somebody can only do the things you do if God is with him. Thank you. I'm being told that the audio cuts out if I move too much, so I will try to remain still. So, like Nicodemus, Joseph at some point had become a secret disciple. That's what John's gospel calls him. And John says in chapter 12, verse 42 to 43, that many of the rulers... And this is speaking of the Sanhedrin. Many of the rulers believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him. Why? For fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. And John tells us that they, they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. Now, before we judge them too harshly, that, that's a struggle we can all relate to, can't we? Can't we, can't we all relate to, that, to the, uh, to the uh, temptation to, uh, to remain quiet? Or if we speak up, we, we will probably, likely offend somebody. It may cost us something. It may cost us our job. It may cost us advantages we have in society. We, we can understand this. It, it could cost us friends and relationships. When we speak up for God, it's, it can be very tempting to to keep our mouths shut and to be quiet. Well, that is where Joseph and Nicodemus have been. Until now, these two men, and we're, we're, we're focusing primarily on Joseph right now, they have been riding the fence. He has believed Jesus is the Christ whom God has sent, but he has, he has not said anything. He has not professed his faith. He has kept his mouth shut in front of his fellow council members. But the time has come for his faith to stay in the shadows. That the, the time has come for his faith to no longer stay in the shadows. That time has ended. And come what may, Joseph has now appeared before Pilate. And as Mark tells us, he gathers up his courage. This word gathered up uh, literally means to dare. To dare. I hate roller coasters. I hate roller coasters with a passion, even more so than traveling. And when I was younger and I, and I used to go to the amusement parks like Great, Paramount's Great America, I would, I would pace back and forth. Uh, if I wanted to spend time with my friends, if I wanted to remain, uh, 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 keep some kind of, of um, uh, composure in their eyes, I would, I would, there would come a point where I would just have to just suck it up and get on the roller coaster. That was the moment where I built up courage. I dared to get on the ride that I hated. That is what he is doing. He, he, is, he is gathering up his courage. He is daring to do something that, that his, his flesh and his, his senses are telling him, you shouldn't do this. But he's doing it nonetheless. And it is a very bold and very daring request that he's making for the body of Jesus. Why? Why is this a daring move? Why is this a bold move? Well, one, one thing is that only friends 
close friends and usually only family had the right to make this request, to, to uh, request the body of, of somebody after they had been executed. Secondly, to think about what he's doing. He is asking to collect the body of a man who has just been executed and con- condemned and executed as a traitor to the people of Israel. And asking for his body, this is, this is a gesture of, of great loyalty and sympathy, sympathy and kinship to the man who, for the last 24 hours, has been public enemy number one. Beyond that, he would have lost his seat on the Sanhedrin. We've, we've already saw from John chapter 12 that the Pharisees had said anybody who, who says he is the Christ is going to be put out of the synagogue. That would mean th- that this man, who, would, is a, who, who was a great leader, he was a great scholar, possibly a, a revered rabbi of the synagogue, he would have, been, he would have lost his seat in the, san- in the synagogue, uh, which means uh, he would have been excommunicated, he would have been disowned, he would have been treated like an outsider. He would have been made uh, a social outcast and a pariah. But more than that, I think Joseph couldn't bear the thought of Jesus's body being cast into a common grave or or worse, the smoldering pits of the city dump, which is where Rome put the bodies, uh, the unclaimed bodies of those who were crucified. And nobody else, Joseph can look around, he can see nobody else is showing up to claim the body of Jesus. So knowing that it's going to cost him Dearly, it's going to cost this man everything. He gathers his courage and he makes the bold request. In verse 42 tells us, tells us uh, one of the reasons why he makes this request. It's the preparation day. And Mark, Mark tells us what that means. That is the day before the Sabbath. And this, this means that a, a law-abiding Jew like Joseph, couldn't bury the body the next day. The next day is the Sabbath. He can't work on the Sabbath. Furthermore, Deuteronomy 21.23 says this, that if you put a man to death and you hang him on a tree, his corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day so that you do not defile your land. And here it is. For he who is hanged is accursed of God. I think, I think Joseph couldn't bear the thought of Jesus being associated with the curse of God in any way any longer. But that, that Old Testament law is why, as John 19.31 tells us, that Old Testament law is why the, the Jewish leaders asked Pilate, that the crucified men, meaning Jesus and the two thieves with him, have their legs broken so that they're uh, to, to, to hasten their deaths so that they could be brought down before the Sabbath. Joseph was aware of this, no doubt, and knowing the unclaimed bodies would just be thrown into the dump, it's now or never if he is going to honor his Lord. And so come what may, Joseph makes the request to Pilate. That leads us to verse 44 and 45, the granting 
of the body. The granting of the body. Mark says that that Joseph, that Pilate wondered if he was dead, if Jesus was dead by this time. And this word wondered, it's, it doesn't mean that he's he's stroking his chin and pondering while he's sipping a latte as to the the plausibility or possibility. Could Jesus have died already? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. I need to think this through. No, this, this word means uh, really that he was surprised, uh, astonished, amazed at the suggestion that Jesus could already be dead. He, everything is telling him that there's no way Jesus could already be dead. So why on earth, Joseph, are you coming in here and asking me for this? And that's because one of the hallmark features of Roman crucifixion was in addition to being incredibly brutal and torturous, it prolonged the death of, it, of its victim. It took sometimes two to three to four days of a man languishing on a cross to die as his life is slowly ebbing away. And here is, here is Joseph asking for the body of a man who has only been on the cross for six, maybe by this time, seven hours at most. Nobody dies on a cross in only six hours. And someone may say, well, doesn't John tell us that Pilate authorized the soldiers to break the legs of the men so, to, to hasten their death so that they, would, that they would die quickly? Well, yes, that's true, but those men have just been sent out. Joseph is coming in perhaps just minutes after those men uh, 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 walk out. They have not yet returned. And so for, for all Pilate knows... And until they, until the the soldiers arrive and carry out their orders to break their legs, for all Pilate knows, Jesus is still suffering and languishing the slow, laborious death that was typical of Roman crucifixion. And so, verse thirty-nine has Pilate summoning the summoning the centurion and this probably took some time Pilate probably has to send a runner to go uh, uh, ask uh, or, or retrieve the centurion and so this probably takes some time and and Mark tells us that this centurion is the one who stood right in front of Jesus and observed Jesus take his last breath and die not only was the centurion responsible to ensure that those in his custody died as they were supposed to, we know that this centurion knows that Jesus is dead. Mark told us he watched Jesus die. He was standing right in front of him, and he saw the way Jesus breathed his last. If there's anybody who can vouch for this man, it's this centurion. It was his job to vouch for it, and we know that he can vouch for it because he saw Jesus die. And so Pilate questions him. In verse 45, he ascertains from the centurion, meaning uh, the, the inquiry has been confirmed. It is, Pilate is informed, yes, Jesus has already died. He died much quicker than is normal and typical and much quicker than anybody Expected, And so, as a result, he, being Pilate, grants the body to Joseph. 
Now, before we move on too quickly, let's just think about this for a second. That Pilate would do this so quickly, I think, affirms he never believed Jesus to be guilty of, of sedition or treason or insurrection. I mean, Mark, Mark already told us in verse 10, Pilate, Pilate could see through the, 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 the politics of the, um, and the, the accusations and the charges of the Sanhedrin leaders. He could see through and, and, and tell that Jesus was being handed over to him not because he was a threat to Caesar or to Rome or to him or to the people. He was a threat to the Jewish leaders. He was a threat to their power. He had sway over the people. That was what they wanted. As long as Jesus was in town, they were old news. And had there been even an ounce of substance to the charges, that Jesus was a dangerous man, he was a bad man, that he was somebody who had corrupted the minds of the people, that he was somebody who led the nation astray, was leading the people down a wrong path and and who incited uh, rebellion, who incited his followers not to pay their taxes to Caesar. All those things that they accused him with. If, If Pilate saw even an ounce, even an iota of substance to those charges, he would not have released, so quickly released the body to one who is obviously a sympathizer and supporter and follower of Jesus. At, at this point, Pilate just wants to wash his hands of the whole affair. He just wants to be done with it. So he grants the body, which in effect is saying, go ahead, take the body and go away. And what Pilate could care less about, and what I think Joseph was probably unaware of, was that these men were, were fulfilling Isaiah 53, 9 to a T. Isaiah 53, 9 says, his grave was assigned with wicked men. Yet he was with a rich man in his death. Condemned as a dangerous political threat, Jesus was executed alongside two terrorists. Notice Isaiah said, his grave was assigned with wicked men, plural. And Jesus is is condemned and hung alongside two men who fit that description. They They were murderers, they were thieves, they were rebels, they were wicked men. And such men were inevitably thrown into the valley of Gehenna. And no one's showing up and asking for the bodies. And everyone's assuming Jesus' body would be thrown in with them. And so Jesus' body is just one more on the pile of wicked men in this unmarked common grave. That's That's where his grave was assigned. But that's not where he was laid. That is not where he ended up. Isaiah 53, 9 says, Yet he was with a rich man in his death. His grave was assigned somewhere else, but at the end of the day, he was with a rich man in his death. Singular. Joseph is this rich man. And just like the religious rulers who who conspired to 
to have Jesus arrested and put on the cross. Here is Joseph, and he, and he is doing what he thinks is right. He is acting out of his own desires. He is not, notice, he is not being forced. He is not being pressured. He is not being coerced into doing anything he doesn't want to do. He is doing what he, what he feels he must. And as, as we've seen before throughout Mark's gospel, as with um, Peter's house, and the boat, you remember the USS pulpit, uh, with, uh, with the donkey that he uh, rode into town, with the cloaks that were placed on the donkey, with the upper room that he had the Last Supper with, with all, just like all of those people who supplied those things. Here is Joseph. He is just another follower, uh, just another disciple of Jesus who is merely using what has been put into his hands and he is employing it into the service of Jesus Christ. As he has done throughout this gospel, here is God providentially using common, normal, natural, everyday means to bring about what he said he would accomplish this time being the fulfillment of Isaiah 53:9 that is the granting of the body notice notice verse 46 i, I said jo- here is joseph and he is he is uh this is a gesture of affection on on his part i don't think he's aware he's fulfilling anything prophetic it's a gesture of his affection verse 46 uh, uh, charts or details his affection. He is he is acting out of love and affection and a desire to honor Jesus any way he can. Verse forty six says that he bought a linen cloth for for those uh, husbands out there. If you want to show affection to your wife, uh, buy her a linen cloth. Linen was far more expensive than wool. Compared to wool, linen was stronger, it was smoother, and very importantly, in the, in the summer heat, it was way cooler than wool. And, and, and so it was greatly more expensive. And it's proper, it was proper, it was more honorable to bury someone in this high-quality linen cloth. Joseph bought, brought this cloth, and then he takes Jesus's body down off the cross. And likely at this point, they move to uh, they move Jesus's body to the tomb, which John nineteen forty one says was was near where Jesus was crucified. And we know uh, that they were following Jewish burial customs because uh, that's what John tells us. Um, but at this point, they would have washed Jesus's body. They would have wrapped it in the linen. And John specifies at this point, Nicodemus arrives and he assists by providing uh, uh, myrrh and aloes. And this is um, this is like the, the the aromatic, fragrant perfume that we saw uh, Mary anoint Jesus with in the beginning of chapter 14. Only this time, this is not a little vial that has maybe six to eight ounces of uh, aromatic uh, uh, fragrant oil in it. This is a hundred pounds of the stuff. This is a massive amount of 
fragrant spices. And what they would do is as they were wrapping Jesus' limbs and, and body tightly in this linen cloth, they would, they would uh, interweave and uh, uh, um, uh, interlace the, these aromatic spices between the sheets of the burial cloth. And that would, that would offset the, the stench uh, of decomposition as the body uh, sits and rests in the tomb. That was, that was the Jewish burial customs. And with the, with the preparations for burial complete, Joseph then, in verse 46, Joseph laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out in a rock. Meaning, this, this isn't a, some natural cave that first uh, began by a, by a fox or a little creature uh, uh, digging a hole. And over the years and over the centuries, it, it, it develops into a cave. This was something intentionally built. Uh, skilled labor was hired to chisel and hew this tomb out of the rock. And that's because this was a tomb intended for somebody important. John 19.41 adds that the tomb was located in a garden. So this is not a tomb of convenience. This is, this is not Joseph and Nicodemus looking, where can we put Jesus? I don't know. We need to find a place. This is, this is not a Walmart special. This is a, this is a deliberately beautiful, precious, costly place that they are putting Jesus. This is a nice place to be laid to rest. And Joseph and Nicodemus, on their part, their volition, their will, their choice, their desire, they are doing their part to give Jesus a burial worthy of a king. And that is precisely how God superintended the burial of his son to take place. Mark concludes this point. And having laid Jesus there, Joseph rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Someone may think, well, I thought the Romans put the stone there. No, Joseph put the stone there. The Romans will come along and they'll put their seal on the stone and they'll put guards outside uh, uh, in front of the stone. But this is Joseph putting the stone there to pro to protect the body and protect the tomb. Let's look now at verse 47, the gazing of the women. It turns out Joseph and Nicodemus are not the only followers of Jesus who were, who were concerned with what happened to his body. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, uh, are still here. These are two of the three women that Mark uh, referred to in verse 40. Uh, where they were watching, they are still watching, they are still looking on, uh, presumably from a distance, presumably hidden as they do so. Well, and I, the reason I say that is because John told us Joseph and Nicodemus were the secret disciples. They, they, kept their, they kept their allegiance to Jesus, their, their faith in Jesus a secret because of the of the repercussions that would happen. So these ladies who Mark told us, they have been following Jesus ever since the early days in Galilee. They don't know who Joseph and uh, Nicodemus are. They don't know these two men from Adam. 
And here these two men show up and and take his uh, take his body. They don't know what what they're going to do with him. I said there were two out of the three women. Uh, the one who was gone is Salome, uh, which, if she, uh, according to John's gospel, she is probably the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus. So uh, not only is she Jesus's aunt, she's Mary's sister. So it would make sense that uh, Mary is probably very distraught right now, and Salome is probably with her. But Salome will return in uh, chapter 16, verse 1. And so the ladies are watching from a distance. These, these unknown men come and take the body, and they move it somewhere, and they begin prepping him for burial. And by this point, I would imagine the sun, the sun is setting. It is getting dark, and they can't, see, they, they can't see very well what Joseph and Nicodemus are doing. They probably can't tell that an abundant amount of spices, a costly amount of spices are being applied to the body. And because they don't know that Jesus' body has already been uh, uh, anointed with these burial spices, they're actually going to show up, not tomorrow, because tomorrow is the Sabbath, but the day after tomorrow, which would be the third day, Sunday. And they will intend to come back then and anoint the body then. And, and here is another act of providence using these everyday common means. God is using even these ladies, even these ladies, to be acceptable witnesses, not only to the death. Remember Mark uh, 15, verse 40 and 41 says they were watching and they saw him die. Here, there are still two of them who are witnessing the burial. And then in chapter 16, we will see that they will also witness what? What do you think they'll witness in chapter 16? They're going to show up uh, with, with spices intending to anoint the body, but they're not going to witness a body in the tomb. They're going to witness the empty tomb. They will be witnesses, the first witnesses, to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is, This is God providing an acceptable witness. Remember, the law said, Nothing shall be established apart from the testimony of two or three witnesses. The numerous details and the variables and all the contingencies surrounding the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus demonstrates the remarkable nature of God's superintending providence we we have seen the indifferent soldiers we have seen indifferent pilot who could care less about what god is doing we have seen loving followers we have seen hostile enemies of jesus we have seen all of these different parties acting out on their on their own wills they are they are making their own respective personal choices that are born out of their own motives, that are fueled by their own desires. And yet regardless of whatever the natures of their motivations are, God is using them to accomplish what he said was going to happen all along. And this is, this is God doing freely and masterfully what he this is, this is what God does 
freely and masterfully in the world he created. This is God superintending over the lives and circumstances and events of the creatures he created. And so because of the days that we currently live in, I would, I would plead with you, I would exhort you, let the faithfulness of God to bury his son precisely as he said it would be done all those years ago by the mouth of Isaiah the prophet. Let the faithfulness of God to, to fulfill his word be the same faithfulness that we throw ourselves upon when he tells us in Matthew 6, do not worry about your life. Let the faithfulness of God to do everything he says he will do be the faithfulness that we rest upon when he says he will not allow your foot to slip. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your soul. He has proven himself able and faithful in all these other places. We should remember his faithfulness now. And and that's what I would encourage you to do. Remember his faithfulness. Remember his faithfulness the next time you get the food you need. Remember his faithfulness the next time you open your pantry cabinet and you see it stocked full of good tasting food. Remember his faithfulness the next time you lay, tonight even, when you lay your head down on the pillow and you fall asleep at night in a house with a roof protected from the elements, remember his faithfulness. Remember his faithfulness the next time you open your closet and you see, you see all the clothes you have the choice of wearing. Remember his faithfulness the next time you put gas in your car. Remember his faithfulness the next time you go to the pharmacy and you get the medicine you need for your body. Remember his faithfulness. In all things, James tells us that every, everything, every good gift comes from above. I would implore you, remember his faithfulness. Remember his faithfulness when our fellowship with one another is restored. Let's pray. Lord, Father God, great is your faithfulness. You are faithful even when we are faithless. Anybody out there who is struggling with worry and doubt and concern, remind them how good and how faithful you are. Draw us ever to you. Cause us, make us to lean ever more so upon you upon your might, upon your counsel, and upon your sweet providence. Amen.